was on Why Does God Allow Suffering? And um, I sat down to listen to it thinking, oh, this would be good, like, trip down memory lane. And uh, it was disgusting. It was the worst thing ever. It was literally so bad that I took it out of the CD player and snapped it and threw it in the bin because it wasn't even worth keeping for posterity. Um, And it kind of made me think, you know, what does a 19-year-old, upper-middle-class, educated, white, heterosexual kid in Australia know about suffering? Um, And if I'm honest, 18 years on, I'm not sure that I still know... I still don't know much about suffering, really. Um, And I think it's the same for a lot of us. As 21st century Christians in Australia... It can be hard to relate to a passage like this and really comprehend what is going on um, because there's very few of us here that have actually suffered in the way that this passage is referring to. Um, uh, So I think it's important to start by stating clearly what this passage is not talking about. Um, It's not talking about an Israel Folau kind of quasi-persecution. I'm sorry to disappoint anyone, but that's 100% not what this is on about. Um, So tonight I want to focus on a few areas that can help us understand this passage a little better in the context of the letter. Um, So number one, the context of the early church and Peter's letter to them. Number two, the early church's expectation of suffering. Uh, Number three, the importance of being clear why you are suffering. And fourthly, our response to suffering and what it says about Christ and our faith. Um, And it's in this context that I want to look at a couple of inspiring women through history that have truly suffered for the sake of Christ in the way that our text refers to tonight and uh, how that might inspire us today to take action. Um, So jumping into the context, the letter that we're looking at is attributed to the Apostle Peter. That's the same guy that walked with Christ, uh, denied him three times and, you know, walked on water to Christ and then started to sink. That, that's the guy we're talking about. He went on to lead the early church uh, in the Middle East. Um, we know that he was writing this letter somewhere around 80 to 100 AD in modern-day Iraq, um, in, in the city of Babylon, which was about 94 kilometres southwest of what we call Baghdad. Um, and he was writing this, church, this letter to the churches in Asia Minor, Um, And that is what we call Turkey today. So there were these little churches dotted around the place. um, And these Christians were having a pretty hard time. It was right during the reign of Rome. And the reign of Rome was well and truly entrenched. You know, they were conquering most of the known world. And they were almost unbeatable. They were just systematically going through and, you know, um, establishing their empire. And a key uh, element or characteristic of the Roman Empire was their brutality and their penchant for crushing any cult that rose up to oppose the empire. Um, The Romans actually believed that Caesar was God. Uh, Indeed, all citizens were required to confess that Caesar is Lord. And that didn't really bother many people. If you're a pluralist or a a polytheist, um, you know, who cares? You know, just one of many. But for the Christians, it was different. Um, And so unsurprisingly, the Christian claim that Christ, and therefore by implication not Caesar, is Lord, was a political act, and it didn't put them in the good graces of the empire. And so into this melting pot of the near ancient east, um, around the Mediterranean, the gospel of Christ is spreading like wildfire. And incredibly, it's 
spreading not through powerful, violent means, um, which was pretty common. Like little cults would pop up and they'd want to conquer the empire and they'd be quashed and there'd be a you know, bloody uprising and then they'd you know, be sent to the cross or out to the gulag somewhere. Um, but this, this uprising was different. It was not at all through bloody uprising and social upheaval. It was spreading predominantly through small, powerless groups of women, slaves, men and children and there was a diasporatic mix of social classes and ethnicities. And this was really quite different for the time. And it wasn't a revolution of violence. It was a revolution spread by love of God and love of neighbour. Indeed, there's, hist- uh, there's historical records that show uh, one Roman precinct official who oversaw a, a group of people across a wide area. Um, he was writing to these reports that um, managed the provinces that he was responsible for. And he's writing to them about the Christians and complaining that the way these Christians are behaving is making the Roman Empire look bad. You know, the Christians are healing the sick and looking after the orphans and widows. They're caring for the marginalised. They're burying the dead of those who can't afford it. They're literally clothing the naked and feeding the destitute. And this Roman official writes and says, them worries, they need to stop doing it because they're going to take over the empire. They're looking, they're looking good. And so his command, surprisingly, to the generals in this instance, to stop the takeover, is to tell them, he tells his generals to start imitating the Christians, to literally outlove the Christians. Um, can you imagine that? This guy saying, you know, he tells them, I want you to go and feed more hungry people. I want you to go and clothe more destitute than the Christians do. I want you to go and care for more sick people than the Christians do. And of course, it didn't work because these small secretive bands of Christ followers had been transformed by the love of Jesus and that wasn't something that the might of the Roman Empire could just manufacture. But in amongst all this kind of stuff, like these little pops of light that the the small bands are showing, the Christians are being regularly slandered and maligned, they're pulled into the streets, they're mocked, they're sometimes beaten, their possessions are confiscated, they were ostracised from their original communities. Their members are dragged into the arenas to, and be, to be killed for sport. Um, you ever watch Gladiator? That's the kind of thing that you're thinking of there. And it's right in the middle of this atmosphere that we find the story of a woman named Perpetua. Um, I'm not sure if any of you have heard of her. There's a slide up there. Um, she's the one in white. Um, it's an amazing story, and Perpetua was clearly an incredible young woman. She was a woman born to an upper-class family in, and she lived in Carthage, um, uh, which was a Roman city in northern Africa, so she was African. Um, she was around 18 to 20 years old when she became or was converted to become a Christian and was in the process of what was called catechesis, which was a three-year process where you had to prove that your newfound beliefs had actually changed the way that you lived and it was a process both for spiritual formation but also to protect the Christians um, from persecution that you couldn't just rock up to a seeker-sensitive service and be welcomed in. It was, it was pretty full-on. Um, when she became a Christian, her father was furious about her decision um, and demanded that she recant, basically disowned her, but she steadfastly refused to do that um, and was eventually imprisoned after refusing to recant her faith um, She was pregnant when she was uh, imprisoned and she was forced to give up her nursing baby uh, to her brother and mother who had also become Christians. Um, 
And it's really interesting because she was a noble citizen, a Roman citizen, eventually imprisoned for her faith um, and eventually martyred. Um, And at the age of 22 with a group of other Christians uh, that included men and women, some pregnant, both slave and free, uh, they were all martyred in the arena in Carthage as entertainment for the emperor of the day was Septimus uh, Severus. And so in this picture here on the left, we have the epitome of the good news, the gospel of good news for the poor. Two women, the lowest gender, according to the customs of the day, and arguably still a custom that's persisting in many places today. One a noble and the other a slave. The one in red, her name was Felicitas, um, both equal in the faith and demonstrating the endless love of God in their willingness to suffer even to death. The historical documents tell us that Perpetua's immense grace and dignity in witnessing the brutal death of her friend Felicitas and the others that she was with, as well as her own death, um, was just incredible. It was was shocking to people. She willingly submitted to it on the basis of her belief that Christians should stand firm in their faith and they should love one another. And I think it's an instructive story for us today in light of this passage we've read because it shows us clearly that the early Christians expected to suffer and they accept, accepted it as their fate. They saw that as Christ suffered, they too were to suffer following their master. And that was so incredibly powerful. For true Christian suffering allows the powerless to stare into the face of the powerful and to say, your oppression does not cannot, will not crush me. She could say, she could stare into the face of the Caesar and say, Jesus is Lord, not you. She could say, Jesus cares for the weak and the downtrodden, for those that you ride over in your pursuit of power and wealth. And that completely subverted their perceived authority in the most severe of ways. Perpetua, like many of her Christian brothers and sisters could, with the peace of God in her heart, looked square in the eyes of the Roman Emperor Septimus Severus as he sat in the most esteemed, powerful seat in the arena, as the wild animals tore at her, as the whips scourged her naked back and the gladiators pierced her flesh. And she could say, you can ask me to recant my faith, but I have met the living Christ. You can strike me on the cheek and I'll offer you the other. You can destroy my body but I have already submitted my body to the work of Christ. You can treat me with utter contempt, but I will continue to show you love because I know that God, the creator of the universe, loves you too. For you also are made in his image. Isn't that just spine-tingling? It just, it's incredible. Friends, we need more Christians, more Christ followers like Perpetua. People who are marked by love, love of God and love of neighbour, who are willing to change the world. Followers of Jesus who are willing to stare in the face of unjust governments and structures that treat people with contempt, that destroy his good creation, that trade in fear and isolation, that tell us that money is king and their market is unbiased and to say confidently to them, you are treating God's very image with contempt and we, the Christ followers, will bring shame upon you by how we love the least of these. I guarantee that if we all started doing that kind of thing a little bit more often, we would begin to experience some more suffering. If we think back to Peter's letter, imagine you're a Christian living in 80 AD and the empire has taken your family and all of your possessions 
They're brutal and unjust, completely favouring the highest strata of society. You're angry, and it's the type of situation that's ripe for political upheaval and murderous, vengeful rebellion and revolution. So Peter reminds his readers, remember, we Christ sufferers, we Christ followers are to be marked by love. Remember, too, that Christ suffered. Don't give in to the temptation to stoop to violence and murder. It's the weakest option. And I think this is exactly what Martin Luther King Jr. was riffing off when he wrote these famous words. The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence, you murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And so Peter, in his letter to the Christians in Asia Minor, adds this instruction. He says, don't even steal or withhold what the empire wants to take from you. You know, you could feel justified in keeping that back, but don't do it. Let them have it so that there's nothing that anyone can say about you other than that you were marked by the love of Jesus. Don't be found to be suffering because you've meddled in other people's affairs. And I think this is a big one for us today. You know, don't, be, don't let it for, be for decrying or lamenting the immoral society we live in. Don't let it be for moralising or whining that if only we could go back to the good old days when, you know, society cared what church thought. You know, when we suffer for those things, we're not suffering for Christ. And I'm convinced that so much of the so-called suffering that we experience as Christians in the West is because we've become tactless and unloving. We've claimed to follow the Christ, but we've given ourselves over to the lavish promises of just war and secure borders, crying persecution all the while. Friends, that is not the suffering that, that Peter wrote about here. Let the only things that can be said about you be that you embarrass the powerful by how much you, your love undermined them, by how much your love of God and love of neighbour showed that the emperor has no clothes. We need, we need more churches willing to step up and live this kind of radical love. I want to finish with another story of a remarkable woman named Josephine Butler. She was a woman that lived in Victorian England and she was born in 1828 to a wealthy home and was well-educated. Um, being well-educated and a cultured woman, she had a husband and children, her decision to enter brothels and care and advocate for prostitutes and children was sh shocking to society. She appalled the world by speaking about unspeakable topics, the horrible treatment of marginalised women and children. In, in Victorian England, the mistreatment of women was rife and uh, prostitutes, often forced children, were well and truly at the bottom of society. They had absolutely no rights. They were subjected to complete humiliation and abuse. They had no rights in society and they regularly died young of disease and neglect and brutality. And the church of the day had basically turned their noses up at them, forgotten about them, consigned them to hell as ungodly and dirty sinners. Um, but Butler was different. She recognised their humanity, their godlikeness, and she made it her life's work to eradicate unjust legislation that targeted prostitutes. She worked tirelessly to raise the age of consent from 13 to 16 
She opened hospices and refuges where children and women could escape the brutality of brothels and forced slavery to recover and rebuild their lives. And she did it all because of her faith in Jesus. And all of it was done in the face of intense criticism and toxic and a toxic patriarchal society. Politicians of the day were by and large in favour of the status quo, as many of them were patrons of the services, and uh, they would often note that these people were miserable creatures, just mere masses of rottenness and disease, and meanwhile excusing the men who used them as simply indulging natural impulses. Um, Some MPs even openly defended access to working-class women as a a time-honoured prerogative of gentlemen. But Butler fiercely took them to task. She would speak publicly and rousingly in support of the rights of women. She suggested that prostitutes were more virtuous than the men who used them because at least they weren't leading a double life. She reminded the the people publicly that Jesus had said, publicans and harlots will enter the kingdom of God before you. And uh, she was fearless in her criticism, unwavering in her love towards the marginalised women of her era. And unsurprisingly, she upset the elite. You know, the pe- people didn't like her, you know, disturbing the status quo. And she withstood incredible public pressure and ridicule, along with health issues that she suffered all through her life from her tireless campaigning. But Josephine Butler felt called by God to be a voice of change. She knew that if Jesus was on her side, that was all she needed. Indeed, one of her famous sayings was that God and one woman make a majority. Friends, we need more Christ followers like Josephine Butler. More Christians like Perpetua and Felicitas. Christ followers ready and willing to renounce violence and polarised community divisions. Christ followers ready to be peacemakers and work tirelessly in love of their neighbours. I remember seeing, uh, maybe six months ago now, in the morning service here, um, a video about Open Doors, um, who's a group that works with the persecuted church around the world. And it was an interview with this beautiful Syrian um, Christian couple. And they were describing why they had refused to leave the country when offered the chance, um, staying amongst so much war and risk and suffering. And they replied so matter-of-factly, like it was nothing, Um, that they were the hands and feet of Christ to those in their Syrian communities and that Christ had not left Syria, so why should they? It just blew me away. And so it it reminded me of when Peter writes to to these churches in Asia Minor, he says towards the end of this passage, we should humbly submit ourselves to service, come what may, knowing that we can leave all of our worries with him because he cares for us. My friends, we may indeed suffer when we live a life of love and we need to be prepared for that. But in doing so, perhaps we will reveal to those in our community the love of the risen Christ and that he may do his healing work in their lives as well. Would you pray with me as we close? Uh, Jesus, uh, thank you for the records of letters like this. Thank you for the stories of amazing people in history that have shown your love in ways that we can hardly comprehend. Um, I pray that you would challenge us, uh, you would speak to us daily and show us where we need to be more loving and more like you, more like these women we've heard about tonight. 
thank you for your love and thank you for your, uh, your guidance and thank you that you're with us uh, through everything. In your name we pray. Amen.